From the LA Times Studios, this is Asian Enough. Each week on this podcast, we talk to one Asian American celebrity about the joys, the complications, and everything else that comes along with being Asian American. I'm Jen Yamato. And I'm Frank Shaw. This week on episode seven of our podcast, we're joined by civil rights attorney Rabia Chowdhury. She'll talk about growing up with her parents' expectations. You know, when they left Pakistan in 1970, 1970s Pakistan never left them. You know, my dad would be like, your hair should be in two braids and it should be well oiled. We'll also talk about surviving domestic violence, defending Muslim Americans after 9-11, and about what Rabia learned about storytelling after being on the Serial podcast. So... Let's get to it. Asian Enough is presented by Little America, now streaming exclusively on Apple TV Plus in the TV app on all iOS devices and TV app supported devices. This advertiser has no influence over editorial decisions or content. First of all, how are you dealing with the quarantine? And I saw your tweets. What is it like to self-isolate with your mother, which I could not imagine doing myself right now? So my sister who lives in the area, we've split up the parents. My dad's with her. My mom's with me. Look, they're older. They like their space. They miss their friends. They miss their routine every day. The biggest struggle for me in this coronavirus is not my kids. It's not my cats. It's not my husband being home. It is trying to convince my 70-something-year-old mom to, like, not go out and to just sit still um, because she feels really trapped. And, you know, we're fine. We're not in a war. <laughs> we're okay. And I'm trying to convince her she'll be okay for another couple of weeks. Yeah, she wants to go home, and I don't want her to go because I know she won't sit still. That's, like, such a tough part about this is I spent all day yesterday arguing with my mom and dad on the phone. It's just like, Mom, you got to stop going to work. You know, Dad, you got to stop doing this. And going out is so important to their sense of themselves, you know, their sense of their autonomy. It's really hard to tell them not to. Yeah, when they're retired, they, they have another routine to keep them kind of going. And, and I get it. I get it. But we're just going to have to get through. I mean, hopefully another few weeks. Aside from the isolation, we're seeing kind of an alarming increase in xenophobic incidents and anti-Asian sentiment, you know, fueled by Trump referring to the virus as a Chinese coronavirus, as if, you know, there's any other kind that anyone's paying attention to. You know, we really got to specify for some reason, you know, racism, bullying in school, hate crimes, you know, some of the same things happen to, you know, Muslims in the wake of 9-11 and continue to happen, you know, so I'm just curious, like, what's been on your mind during all this? Yeah, you know, when I heard that, I and I've seen it over and over again, and it's just disgusting, but certainly the commander-in-chief sets the tone on that. And Muslims after 9-11 had a lot of different struggles, but one of them was messages that came out of the White House that called terrorism overseas Islamic terrorism, as if it was something condoned by the religion itself and not a bunch of criminal, violent criminal extremists killing other Muslims, basically. So... Uh, for years, that was a big struggle. Like, even if you call it Muslim terrorists, I think that's more accurate than Islamic terrorism. This kind of messaging um, hurts a lot of people. You know, children in schools get bullied and others pick it up. It's not just Trump. Trump's saying it and other people are repeating it. And we are seeing it like people who are going to just out or, you know, being attacked by people in the public. It's really, it's despicable is what it is. But I expect nothing less from, um, I'm sorry, a president who deflects everything and looks for 
ways to blame the marginalized and minorities and anybody he can hurt. So, yeah, that's that's Trump. And I think like one of the fascinating things about watching this is is seeing we have this so as a society, this desire to associate, you know, national identity with an existential threat, the Spanish flu, African Ebola virus, Chinese coronavirus, Muslim or Islamic terrorism. Yeah, I don't know what that says about us. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of a chilling moment right now. Well, Rabia, one of the reasons we were excited to have you on is that you're so well known for your work advocating on behalf of Adnan Syed, the subject of uh, the first season of Serial. You went on to create your own podcast about it, Undisclosed. You have not finished this work advocating for him, but also bringing awareness to these bigger questions of criminal justice reform. And this is also a case that that is still in the the current cultural conversation. For example, last year, there was a docuseries, The Case Against Adnan Syed. One question I had for you was, through all these iterations of shining a, a larger media light on this specific case that's very close to you, how have you observed that Serial, for example, handled questions of culture, religion, and race specifically? Yeah, so, you know... Uh, when Sarah Koenig, who um, hosted, produced the Serial Podcast, was investigating the case, this case had just mountains of evidence showing that there was ethnic and religious discrimination, just mountains of it. I mean, his race, ethnicity, and religion was mentioned about 300 times at his trial. I mean, it doesn't get any more clear than that. But we actually had some trouble convincing her uh, and you hear it a little bit in one of the episodes that that was an issue. And um, now that wasn't the only issue. This case, as a wrongful conviction goes, has all the red flags of lots of different wrongful convictions. And since we started Undisclosed, you know, we covered Adnan's case in kind of our first season. But we've done like 15 cases since then. And um, we've helped to bring about half of those defendants home, exonerated. And Adnan's case is one of those where we haven't done that. But in every case, you're going to see similar red flags. You're not going to always see racial or um, religious discrimination, but Adnan's case was pretty clear. And while there were actually some critiques written of the podcast that they didn't take that seriously, I honestly was so grateful that anybody paid attention. I said, okay, fine. They didn't do a stellar job on that. And there were other aspects of it that I you know, thought, okay, they should have dug down a bit deeper. It gave us so much momentum that we were able to then fill in those gaps and I think, you know, moving on even in, in the HBO documentary series or with Undisclosed or with the book, I wrote a book that Adnan contributed to, which is a New York Times bestseller, you know, and that book, in fact, actually has a lot of information about kind of the climate and um, what was happening in the Muslim community and how the state was able to use those issues against us. People recognize that it was glossed over a bit, but we still... Honestly, without Serial, we couldn't be where we are today. And uh, Adnan is still in prison, but we are still well, well beyond uh, where we used to be five, six years ago. And we are much closer to getting him home. Reading your book about Adnan's case, there are so many details that you fill in just about life in the year 1999 when this happened that were so recognizable to me. Like, I knew these kids. These, this high school was like my high school in so many ways. My school dance... The theme was Casey and JoJo's All My Life. It's these like dimensions that that really, I think, bring home to me the fact that like, had I not known anything else about this particular case, 
I would not have known that these are kids that like I basically knew at that exact point in time. Like I was in high school at that time. So those are like dimensions of just their lives that I really appreciated understanding better. You bring up a great point because part of the issues here were not just what happened in the courtroom, but what was going on with these group of kids, because that also, it's like, you know, the idea that, oh, they're living these double lives. And so that shows a propensity for like him to be a Jekyll or Hyde. All the Asian Americans, all the Arab Americans, a lot of uh, Latino Americans reached out and were like, are you kidding me? We were all leading those double lives. And yeah, that aspect was really recognizable to a lot of us who come from different cultures. Whereas, you know, for people who don't, they're like, what's all that about? You know, like, why do you have to hide going to the prom? And I'm like, oh, my God, do I have stories? Yeah, this is something that I just feel personally, but like I've also been in the position of trying to convince white people of racism. And, you know, white people are extremely biased about the subject of race. You know, they're they're biased against its existence. You know, Uh, they are its main perpetrators in history. And And I was just curious because you've made a career out of trying to convince people in the courtroom as an activist of racism, you know, and and you try to argue that race is a factor here. And I'm just wondering, like, what works? Well, I'll tell you what works. And, you know, the racism that we see, especially in the criminal justice system, impacts mostly black males, I I mean, exponentially more than other groups. But what I've learned, and, you know, after 9-11, I graduated law school around the same time, like right after 9-11. And so I kind of got pushed into a space of being like a community advocate on civil rights stuff, this and that, all the stuff that was happening in the Muslim community. But what I realized when Serial came along is that we were doing it really wrong. We were, we were really, we didn't know how to be advocates because what we were trying to do is convince people of issues by presenting them with data and facts and issues and policy proposals instead of telling stories. And what I've learned since then is it's the story that works. You know, I've had thousands of people over the years reach out, not just to me, but to Adnan, saying, we read this book or we listened to this or we watched this. And we didn't even realize some of the the assumptions we held or the prejudices we had about Muslims until we, you know, heard your story and was like, oh, my God, you're just you're just like any of us. And, and you know, it made it much more self-aware. I think storytelling is one of the most powerful aspects. Storytelling is what changes people's hearts and minds. Really, nothing else works. What were some of the the stories that first made you feel that, like, even growing up, you were always, like, a writer at heart? What were the stories that first took hold in you? Where did you get them? You know, the stories, look, I mean, growing up as an American Muslim, when before 9-11, honestly, a lot of people had no idea, or maybe before the Iran hostage crisis, I'm trying to think of what international event made me realize (laughs) that I'm a Muslim. It was probably the the first Gulf War. I remember the first Gulf War, I was in middle school, And the war began in the middle of the day, and a teacher came over to me and said, hey, tell your uncle Saddam Hussein to back off or something. And I said, who is Saddam Hussein? I'm not Arab. I don't even know what's happening. And I was a kid. But, you know, a lot of the stories really just came from, like, my parents handing down stories, like stories out of our religious tradition, cultural tradition. As an adult, I realized what's problematic with a lot of the stories. that They're wonderful stories, uh, very heroic stories, but they also set up this false, like, idealism that didn't allow us to feel like if you're a Muslim, you can also have faults. You can make mistakes. You can screw up. Because all the stories we were told were about people who were just incredibly honorable, did the most amazing things. <laughs> and that's what you aspire to. Uh, and that's who you're supposed to be. Um, What's an example? Gosh, I mean, 
Uh, one example is like my name. So I'm named after a medieval century, like Muslim female saint, one of the only Muslim female saints, I, the most best known. Um, I think she lived in the 12th century. I don't even know. Rabia al-Adawiya. And, you know, the story I was told about her growing up was that, you know, she was incredibly righteous and pious. And she spent all her days worshiping God. In the evenings, she would go out and teach people. And she had so much faith in God that she she just kind of stayed cloistered in this little space that she told people, don't bring me any food because God will deliver me sustenance and food would appear out of nowhere. So oh, wow. for, <laughs> for a little kid to be like, okay, I gotta like be this, this incredible role model. And um, and she, and, and you know, she wasn't an amazing saint from what we know, but of course, over the years, you don't know what's been, you know, added to the tradition and uh, you know, it was just kind of this this really high expectation of piety and religious righteousness that is really almost impossible to meet. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about where you grew up? You were born in Pakistan and ended up in Maryland, right? Yeah, so I, I was born in Pakistan. I was only like six or something. I was I was under one when my parents came over here. So I was raised in the United States, and uh, ah. my dad worked for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. He was a veterinarian. And um, a lot of people don't know there's like this huge Pakistani veterinary, like a whole <laughs> gang of them in the U.S. Department of Agriculture. <laughs> they all came over in the 70s. Yeah. But we grew up in very small agricultural towns because of that, because my dad had to work where, you know, where there was agricultural business. So Kansas, Delaware, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, just very remote places where we were often the only people of color, not just the only Muslims, but really there were there were places where there were no other black people, no other black families. So very small town America. Then when I got to about high school is when we kind of moved to a slightly bigger town with with diversity in it. So but most of my kind of formative years in adult life, I've grown up around the Beltway, Northern Virginia or Maryland, and, and that's where I am now. Mm -hmm. You've written on your blog that your parents know how to be quote, critical of where we've been and where we are without throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, I guess I just wanted to know how your parents raised you and how that shaped you. My parents, you know, when they left Pakistan in 1970, 1970s Pakistan never left them. So as time moved on, their idea of what's culturally appropriate for us was forever 1970-something Pakistan, meaning you know, my dad would be like, why don't you have your hair? Your hair should be in two braids and it should be well oiled and you should dress a certain way. And you should, you know, at home, we always wore uh, Pakistani clothes at home. You know, we only ate Pakistani food at home. But the funny thing is we would, when we would visit Pakistan, like when in the 80s and 90s, people over there would be like, you know, all the women would have their hair like cut and permed and look really cute. And they'd be like, what is wrong with you people? Why do you look like, <laughs> like you're from like the, a blast from the past? But, you know, my my parents are, my dad is a very spiritual person. He's not like a kind of a religious person, like a ritualistic. My mom is much more religious. My mom raised us with like some really strong values. And like the one thing that we heard over and over and over again is that the whole purpose of your life is how are you going to serve other people? Like, what are you going to do with all the education, the time, the health, the wealth, the youth, everything you have is basically like a test. Like, you're being tested for what are you going to do with it? That's the whole point of being here. And so, you know, I, I always appreciate that because I think that's the one thing that's driven me to always feel like there's more to do. There's more to do. There's a lot more to do. Do you think that in your life there was a moment in time or like an age or 
an event in your young life where you started to have like an awareness of like, oh, these are the sets of values that my family have imparted to me. But here are the things that I want to take with me to decide how I live my life in my own way. For me, that was like age 17 for various reasons. There's this moment where we realize that that we will uh, have our own values to form as well and our own paths to chart. And I'm curious what your experience of that was like. I, mean, I can't not remember a time when my mother wasn't talking about people in need. Like, you know, I grew up hearing about Palestine, Chechnya, Kashmir, Ethiopia. But I think like the earliest memory I have was actually of I think it was in the early 80s, there was a horrible famine in Ethiopia. And I think I was in sixth grade at the time because the earliest memory I have is that I was sitting, it was like a recess or break or something. And I was sitting and I was reading, it was either a Life magazine or a Time magazine that had this horrific cover of an Ethiopian child that was that was skeletal, basically. And I was reading this. It was killing me to read about this famine. And all of a sudden, like, I could hear my teacher talk to her TA, her teacher's assistant, saying, She's like the only kid I know who reads that magazine. Suddenly I was like, wait, re- am I really? Is that why I have no friends? <laughs> and that's like the earliest memory I have of <laughs> just being like, not just concerned, but feeling emotionally like tied to it. And also I am responsible for trying to do something about it. And then, I mean, my in my high school yearbook, um, what I wrote was that, you know, I want to join the Peace Corps and and build wells and do things like that. And I didn't join the Peace Corps because life happens. But I, th- I think that sense, it's like, I, there's just never been a time when I don't recall us being drilled with these things. You, so you mentioned that in past interviews that you were painfully shy growing up, but a divorce changed everything and, and made you kind of unafraid to be loud. Is it okay if you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, I got married very, I, I met my first husband when I was 19. I'm in college. I've never had a boyfriend before because, you know, we couldn't, we weren't allowed to do that. Um, and fell madly in love and wanted to marry him. And we got married, I think I had one semester left. Within the first year, I had a baby. And so by the time I was 22, I had, I had a little girl. And my marriage very early on, within the first couple of months, was abusive. And it remained abusive as I went on through law school raising this child and living with a very large family of in-laws. And so, you know, I just spent years um, in that marriage and really just most of my adult, just being very quiet and shy, but just not wanting to rock the boat. We, I grew up with a lot of conflict in my family too. I mean, my parents were always in conflict. Um, they're both great people on their own, but maybe not great together. But, you know, where we come from, it's like, you just don't get a divorce. You have to die together. You do not get a divorce. So, when I did um, get a divorce, and the only reason I got a divorce was because my ex was like, enough is enough. And I'm thankful for that because I never, I didn't have the courage. And I also culturally was told it's not acceptable to do it. What happened after the divorce, after our separation was I um, spent eight months fighting for my daughter's custody. And I, that's what I think the moment that really transformed me is learning to really stand up for myself and hold people accountable for what they've done and challenge people on their on their lies and, and, and injustice. And then, and also get to kind of see how the courts work. And then I was a single mom for four years. And that was a different kind of experience that made me feel like I can do anything if I can do this. In those years, I experienced a lot of things. I experienced being on medical assistance, on food assistance, 
you know, because you also have like this pride, like, you know, I don't want to ask people for help. People were not getting divorced. Now it's much more common, but we're talking about in the 90s where my community was not that common. My mom for years after my divorce kept telling people that I was still married and happy because um, <laughs> she was too embarrassed to tell people. It just kind of changed me because I realized I can take care of myself and that I have also experienced things from domestic violence to other things that um, I can use to help other people who are too scared to help themselves. I'm in awe of anybody who's able to to, to share difficult things like that in their own personal experiences. Um, so it's kind of really amazing to hear you describe what I can only imagine were really challenging years. And the idea that that experience can empower you and that then you you found these platforms for using your voice, that like taking that leap is something that is really impressive uh, to see somebody do. It took years. Like um, it took 10 it took maybe yeah. 10 years before I could talk about um being a survivor of domestic violence and even then I wrote about it anonymously first. And then it took another year or so before I shared it again and said this was me. I wrote this. Um so it took a while to do that, but when I did that, I can't tell you how many people reached out to me young women, um, but also parents, uh, like in our community saying, you know, nobody talks about these things. Thank you for, my daughter went through this or, you know, my, or, or my granddaughter went through this and they, she won't talk about it. I'm going to share this with my sister and my this, but it just, it's hard to tell these stories. But when you do, you give permission to other people to also tell their stories uh, and also feel like they're not alone. And so that's the power of doing it. There are, there are still stories in my life that are too painful for me to tell. And I don't know if I'll ever be able to tell them. So you never know, but hopefully the time comes because one thing I realized is that just the tremendous power of healing it has to share them for others. Asian Enough is presented by Little America, the acclaimed comedy series now streaming exclusively on Apple TV+. For your Emmy Awards consideration. Inspired by the true stories featured in Epic Magazine, Little America goes beyond the headlines and looks at the funny, romantic, heartfelt, inspiring, and surprising stories of immigrants in America, and they're more relevant now than ever. Episodes include The Cowboy, where a Nigerian student finds a sense of connection through Oklahoma's cowboy culture, and The Jaguar, where an undocumented high school student's life is changed by an urban squash coach. Apple TV Plus is available on the Apple TV app on iPhone, iPad, Apple TV, iPod Touch, Mac, select Samsung and LG smart TVs, Amazon Fire TV and Roku devices, as well as at tv.apple.com for $4.99 per month with a seven-day free trial. Customers who purchase a new iPhone, iPad, Apple TV, Mac, or iPod Touch can enjoy one year of Apple TV Plus for free. Get Apple TV Plus and stream all of Little America today. There's enough uncertainty to go around these days, especially if you own a business. Luckily, NetSuite reduces it by giving you visibility and control. With so many critical decisions to make, you need the right numbers and you need them right now. NetSuite by Oracle is the world's number one cloud business system. With NetSuite, you get financials, cash flow, payroll, inventory, and more, all in one place. So you have clear visibility and total control of your business. NetSuite customers have the flexibility to work from anywhere with immediate clarity on critical information right at their fingertips. No more guessing, no more waiting. 
Make smarter decisions with confidence because you've got crystal clear visibility into your numbers. It's time to join over 20,000 companies who trust NetSuite to stay in control. Don't wait to get your free guide and schedule your free product tour at netsuite.com slash enough. That's netsuite.com slash enough. NetSuite. Business grows here. You mentioned 9-11 and we definitely wanted to to talk about that experience. I mean, it was a defining moment for everyone of our generation, for the world, and especially for a lot of Muslim Americans. It changed the experience of what it even meant to be American. We were hoping you could just share your own experience and insights on that. Like, how did it change your life And from 9-11 to now, how has it changed life for Muslims in America and how has that experience evolved? You know, I mean, it changed the lives of a lot of, uh, I mean, it changed so many lives, but certainly um, I think young American Muslims who were early on in their career or just the cusp of graduating college who were just, it kind of shaped a lot of our trajectories. Look, I wanted to be a corporate lawyer. (laughs) I was like, I'm going to go to corporate law. And suddenly that looked ridiculous. because I was like, there's a need in this in the community. And, you know, people right now, after this administration has come into power, are seeing the power of immigration and how immigration policy and law can be used to hurt communities. But American Muslims experienced that directly after 9-11. There was, um, there was a different kind of Muslim ban at that time that a lot of people aren't aware of, but it was a registry for Muslim males who were on any kind of visa from like 27 different countries between the ages of like, I think it was 16 and 70. Many, many Muslim men went to register and they never came back. People don't even realize this happened right here in this country, not that long ago. And so, you know, there was just like this immediate um, need that, I'll be honest, look, I, I, I'm a failed doctor is what I am. I went to, I, for undergraduate, I was a pre-medical student. Hey, me too. Yeah, aren't we all? <laughs> that's great. Failed lawyer well, and doctor. <laughs> but you're a successful journalist, so that's what matters. <laughs> I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to do other things, but I had to be pre-med. My sister was pre-med. My brother, none of us are doctors, but we were all pre-med. And when it was very clear that that wasn't going to happen, law school just became the better option because I did really well on the LSAT. And my family was horrified because in Pakistan, lawyers are like the bottom of the bear. It's like the worst profession. They, they were devastated. Devastated. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Became an attorney. You didn't even make your parents happy. That's terrible. They like. were in shock. <laughs> um, and my my relatives overseas, who for years have been calling me Dr. Rabia, like just as a, you know, preemptively, uh, <laughs> were like, we thought you were a good student because back home it's very different. And I now, having visited and gone and seen the bar and seen, like there are, you will find lawyers who literally sit street side, you know, and take cases. I mean, like it's, I can't even explain to you like the difference in the in the wow. in the profession uh, in terms of like its integrity and and how people perceive it. Um, so there weren't a lot of American Muslim lawyers when I went into law. A lot, not a lot of South Asian um, lawyers with me. Uh, I knew one other person who was going to law school from my community, and so suddenly 9/11 happens and we need a bunch of lawyers. And I was one of the few out there, so I was uh, immediately asked by the Embassy of Pakistan to help them with all of these Pakistani nationals who were like going to register and disappearing and showing up in detention centers halfway across the country. And so 
that's when I really became aware of kind of the intersection of immigration and civil rights. And then later on, criminal justice too. These things are very closely tied and how it, how politics makes such a difference in all these things. But you, you brought up something that we wanted to segue to, the term Asian American, the term South Asian and Pakistani American. You know, so in my reporting, I've had occasion to talk to, you know, South Asians, Pacific Islanders, Filipinos and I commonly hear from non-East Asian Americans who don't feel really included in the word Asian American. Now, like, obviously, we we think of you as Asian American because we invite you on this show. But do you think of yourself that way? And and, and what do you hear when you, you hear that word? Yeah, I mean, look, I think most people, when they think of um, Asian American, they think of um, further East. But I do consider myself Asian American. I just, within that group, as a subgroup, I consider myself South Asian American just for more specificity. But I I think most people would not look at me and think of me as Asian American. I think most Americans, especially white people, they they would look at me and just think of me as Muslim because I wear a scarf. So I'm very easily identifiable as a Muslim woman. But beyond that, have trouble placing me because most of them will think I'm Arab because that's how they, they think Muslims are mostly Arab. And that's totally not true. So, you know, my identity as an Asian American, as a South Asian American, as Desi, which is like kind of slang for like brown people from the region, that and my Muslim identity. I mean, like these, both of these aspects have very different, they're just, they, they bring different things to identity and they mean very different things. And in many ways, like culturally, you know, I'm much closer to, you know, and I identify much more with other South Asians uh, whether they are Hindu or Sikh or Buddhist or whatever, coming from that region than I might with a Muslim who comes from, like, let's say, Lebanon. So, yeah, I mean, you know you know how it is. I mean, we all, we we know we have such layered identities. <laughs> I know when I go out, somebody might accuse me of being a terrorist, but they might not accuse me of spreading coronavirus. Like, you see what I'm saying? So the bigotry will look different. Mm. Yes. I mean, along those lines, what are the conversations specific to all of these communities that you are a part of that you feel like we should be having more collectively? Like, what would you like to see discussed more often even? I think this is an interesting moment where it does give an opportunity for some cross-community conversations that I think have not happened. And I, I think immigration and civil rights are at the forefront of that. But I also think media. Luckily, we do like, you know, all of us failed doctors and stuff. Some of us went into journalism and media and stuff. And I'm so thankful for that. We need more of that. But I think, you know, making sure the media gets the language right, um, that we, that our advocates talk to each other on immigration issues, because, you know, immigration has hit certain communities hard, Latino communities, the Muslim ban. But there's absolutely no reason it's not going to, and it is already hitting, you know, Chinese Americans and other Asian Americans from other parts of the world hard. So on those issues, we have to start to coordinate and on civil rights issues and stuff, and and politically. Um, you know, politically, I think a lot of us are kind of in the same space, but I don't know to what extent we really work together or build coalitions together. It's it's rarer than than you would like to see. In L.A., the um, Manzanar pilgrimage, where sort of Japanese-Americans get together with Muslim-Americans from organizations like CARE, and they go to Manzanar together you know, as a as a moment of solidarity. But, you know, other than that, you're right. This needs to be happening more often because there's so many common causes. It's very rare. I would say it's, you might find it in a couple of the bigger metropolitan areas, but outside of that, you're not going to find it. I also wonder, like, your work with Anand's case 
continues to this day, right? I can't wait to stop working on it. <laughs> I can't wait till he's home so I can finally <laughs> move past it. Oh, it's been man. like 20 years, right? I'm curious, like your perspective on this. Do you think people see that as an Asian American story? I don't think so. I think people mostly see it as an American Muslim story or a criminal justice story. I don't know if people see it as an Asian American story. I know there's a, another thing at play here. You know, the victim in this case, Heyman Lee, came from the Korean uh, American community. I, I mean, the facts on the ground in the actual community, th- there was there was no real bridge anyways, but this just ended up creating a chasm in a way between communities. And that's been something where, you know, I, for us, it's really tricky. You can't, as somebody who is advocating for the case to be reinvestigated, uh, you know, or, or, and I'm close to the defendant, you don't want to reach out to the victim's community and family because that can be seen as being like, I'm being coercive or I'm putting some kind of duress on them or I'm trying to manipulate. And I don't want to do that, but I've, in whatever instances I can, I've tried to say, you know, I would love to sit down with the Baltimore Korean American community, many of them who remember all of these details who are connected to the family and go over the case and show them that Heyman Lee didn't get justice either. Your community didn't get justice either. And, you know, just extend that invitation as as a bridge, uh, because the truth is both, both of our communities were manipulated in the prosecution of this case. So, you know, there's multiple dimensions to the Asian American story in this case. It's that time in our show when we ask our guests for their bad Asian confession, a time or thing that made you feel like a bad Asian. And the point being that there's really no such thing. I'll offer one bad Asian confession of mine that came up during this this conversation, and it is that I never felt pressure to become a lawyer or a doctor. So does that actually make me a bad Asian? I feel like I missed out on this experience that like you both had. I need to know how old you are because I totally think it's generational. <laughs> I, I was in high school in 1999. Okay. I'm fourth generation Japanese American. My family, for whatever reason, you know, my parents grew up with a lot of freedom, I think, to do what they wanted or do it or pursue whatever careers they wanted. And so they passed that on to me, which I'm grateful for. But sometimes I hear like, you know, it's like the... Asians are supposed to be supposedly good at math or whatever, or like play instruments. And I I didn't get the same pressure. So sometimes I feel like I missed out in a way, in a, in a weird, twisted way. I missed out on having those same experiences. So many of those experiences are like based on stereotypes about second generation people like me. It's specific to the, the people whose parents came over in the 80s who were doctors and lawyers and, and stuff themselves and then put those pressures on us, you know. And yeah, it's a good reminder that the universality of what I experienced isn't uh, everyone's universe. For me, my bad Asian confession is that I sometimes struggle to care about homeland politics, you know, like what's going on in Taiwan or what's going on in Hong Kong or what's going on in China, you know. I feel exhausted trying to care about my my own homeland, America's politics. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I think in the flavor, I, I mean, I feel inspired by both of your bad confessions because they both ring so true for me. <laughs> but I'll say, Jen, um, my bad confession is a little bit of 
like the opposite of yours in that as a parent, and I, my eldest is 22 from my first marriage. She'll be 23 in May. So she's in graduate school. Then I have an 11 year old, then I have a three year old. So it's like, I have every age range imaginable, but, um, my parents and my ex-husband, because he was also from Pakistan, he's been giving me a lot of pressure in the last year or so that, you know, it's time for, our daughter to start looking for a life partner. And the way we do arranged marriage is really just introductions. It's not like arranged marriage, but it's like start introducing her to people so she can start settling down. So I'm a bad Asian because I'm like, no, let her live her life. Let her enjoy herself. I want her to travel. I want her to live on her own. I want her to do all the things that I didn't do because I got married very young. Um, I'm, I'm being a bad Asian parent by giving my daughter freedom, I think. And, and I'm fighting a lot of people to do that. And so, but I'm going to stand my ground on this for her and for my other kids too. Um, Sometimes you got to be a bad Asian to be a good mother. (laughs) That's a great line. That's exactly true. That's exactly true. Hey there, listener. Do you have a bad Asian confession you'd like to share with us? Call us at 213-986-5652. That's 213- 986-5652. We might even play it on the show, like this one, which comes to us from a listener in Colorado. Hi, just calling in to say thank you for starting the podcast. I was born and raised in the Bay Area, but moved to Colorado a year ago and really missing hanging out with Asian Americans. I'm a really outdoorsy person and the Colorado lifestyle really suits me. My bad Asian profession is that since coming here, there have been times when I wish I was white so I could blend in better. I never really felt that way growing up in the Bay Area. My second bad Asian profession is that I don't really want to move back to the Bay Area. It's expensive and crowded and I don't work at Google. I'm just hoping that more outdoorsy Asians move to Colorado. Great show and keep up the good work. I used to run with Constance Wu's sister in the Bay Area, so I'm hoping for a show with Constance Wu. And that is it for Episode 7 of Asian Enough. Thank you to Rabia Chowdhury for joining us, and thank you for listening. Asian Enough is hosted by me, Jen Yamato, and by Frank Xiong. Our senior producer is Rina Palta. Our executive producer is Abby Fentress-Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin. Our original music was composed by Andrew Epen. This podcast is dedicated to the memory of Lina Anwar. Come back next Tuesday for our conversation with the chef Nikki Nakayama of the Michelin-starred restaurant En Naka. Japan has this amazing culture. America has its own amazing culture. But how lucky am I to be able to pull from both things that I really like and believe in and then to take and then not use the things that I don't believe in? If you like Asian Enough, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Jeff Berkshire, Reed Johnson, Shelby Grad, and Clint Schaff. We hope you're enjoying this podcast created by the journalists at the LA Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and the Times is in the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one, along with our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. And remember, immigrant kids lead a double life. Fibbing to your parents is just part of the deal. Oh my God, do I have stories. <laughs>